Welcome to Don't Quit Your Day Job, a podcast about four guys who have no business thinking anyone will care about what they say. My name's Jeff. I'm Edison. I'm RJ. And I'm Joshua. Today on the pod, the guys talk favorites. So we're going to go around talking about whether it be music, movies, uh, maybe even video games, just kind of talking about things that we've really enjoyed and uh, kind of our formation as people and just talk about uh, things that we like, why we like them, kind of make defenses for why we like them the way that they are, and... I think um, we're going to start it off with me. Is that, is that, is that? Yeah, Edison, look at you. Okay, well, we're going to start off with music then. Um, for me, really, the kind of the, the formative album that I've really, really kind of cling to as a favorite of mine is uh, Green Day's American Idiot. came out in 2004 and was kind of the, the album that brought the band back from the dead. And it was kind of structured as this... Uh, kind of like operatic album, kind of in the same vein as like Tommy and uh, Purple Rain. I think what's really, really good about the album is that it really hits home the kind of political themes and it really hits home on the story. You, You really do get a narrative that starts off from, you know, top to bottom and you get this, these, uh, these characters like St. Jimmy, what's her name? Uh, the Jesus of Suburbia, and you kind of, as you go along throughout the album, you kind of get this like little neat little story. And for like a kid growing up in 2004, you know, a lot of music tended to not have like that kind of creative output. So it was pretty incredible to see uh, a, just a band kind of putting it, putting something out there like that that you know you could uh, you could enjoy the songs individually. Um, but you can ultimately, as, as a story arc, kind of enjoy where they go and kind of where they end up by the end of the album. I know for me, like, I don't often get into different music genres and stuff. I tend to stick just to my jazz, and occasionally I'll branch out into pop punk and that Green Day album. I rem- I still remember when I was a kid, like, that was one of the few that I would I would listen to quite often. And it's like, I do enjoy the aspect of albums telling a story you don't really get that very much nowadays you just get like the singles here and there and there's not really that like used to when you had records you would have to listen to the whole thing all the way through and it would tell a story from start to finish and i think american idiot does a good job of that there's something nice about the collective feeling of music being put together and like one song by itself is good but as it built they build on top of each other and you lose that in Single song, um, single albums, newer albums where every song is its individual piece. That also allows for other things you can do. But I do enjoy the Green Day album and how they did that. I also enjoy a lot of older albums that do that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. And what's really cool about this one, especially, is when you you got two songs in particular, uh, Jesus Suburbia, which kind of uh, even within like the structure of, hey, we've got like song after song kind of telling the story. Uh, even Jesus Suburbia itself, you've got like five little sections to one song, and they're kind of telling this story of this character, but then kind of like going in like really different directions uh, musically within just the same song, and so that's pretty fantastic to see. Um, that was really cool, and you, you especially get that with Homecoming. You kind of get like a bombastic kind of like beginning. You get a kind of like paranoid. Um, fast-paced rhythm like you know straight at it straight up like 70s type punk kind of going in into the middle and then you kind of like almost like a ballad towards the end as you're kind of as they kind of wrap up this uh the uh jesus suburbia suburbia characters arc you know spoiler alert for a music album <laughs> but you know he ends up killing himself towards the end and you kind of you see how green day kind of like <clears throat> wraps up nicely kind of like this character's like progression and where kind of like the political things they wanted to talk about and kind of what that character represents to the album. So it was kind of cool to see that kind of, even within like the songs, they would put out these like monster, like 12, 12 minute songs that don't have the same kind of like, there's a, there's like a, there's twists and turns to them. There's no, there's no like kind of like, okay, it's run its course where, you know, like a song like Stairway to Heaven, it's like, 
okay, by minute four, you're kind of like, oh boy. Like, we get it. It's like Jimmy Page, you know, rocking on the guitar for like three minutes straight. But, um... It's 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 definitely something that I I personally got a kick out of in regards to the music of the album. I think you can't necessarily discount the singles on the album either by themselves. There are certain certain songs on the album that they really hold up well on their own, even if you're not going through the story being told. Oh no, no, absolutely. I think it, it's almost the album itself almost seems prophetic. And, you know, we're now we're looking back 13 years hindsight to American Idiot, but the kind of idea of, you know, you know, the concepts of like propaganda and just kind of like simple mindedness and just kind of being blindly uh, told what to what to think and how to feel and kind of the media's role in, you know, feeding news to, to people. It's almost it's almost as if it was ahead of its time. Uh, in regards to that, so you know, when American Idiot came out, that's a that was a pretty damning statement, you know, to put out there. And a big fuck you to um, Middle America and kind of the uh, the Bush administration at the time. But I mean, you could take that. That song is applicable 13 years ago as it is today. You know, with the way that you know you've got like the Trump administration, it's kind of like uh blurring of the lines blurring of our, our media institutions and kind of like you know like what does a fox role fox news have in regards to their role in you know uh perpetuating media to the to the people and same with like a cnn or an msnbc so um it's really uh it was a the singles kind of very anti-war, anti-authoritarian, and you get that with like American Idiot. You get that with like a Holiday, uh, Wake Me Up with Tim Renz, and then you, it, you know, obviously a couple other songs kind of have like a more personal feel to them. But yeah, no, for sure the singles definitely kick you in the face, and you kind of go off from there. So did you have another album you wanted to talk about? Yeah. So the other album that really captured my imagination uh, growing up as a kid, it's kind of always kind of stayed there as a, like a, kind of like a nostalgia album, kind of a feel good is uh, Kanye West's uh, college, uh, it's college dropout. And so I know that we're kind of, he kind of gets a bad rap. I mean, he's done some dumb things, but I mean, Going into this album, oh boy, that was like, it was kind of like his ascension and kind of like how the hip-hop community had essentially <coughs> deemed him the next, like, uh, the next great MC and kind of like the generational type that would kind of take hip-hop from the ash heap that was the East Coast, West Coast kind of war and kind of like the aftermath of you know the deaths of like Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls and um and kind of take what was left um by rappers like Nas and Jay-Z and kind of like they hadn't yet hit like cult status yet but we're kind of getting there and, and kind of Kanye kind of comes in with like the swagger and the bravado and it's it was really cool to see especially um if you're a fan of the Chappelle show um, you know that that first season is pretty cool because you get to see Kanye before even the album comes out and he's putting out these songs that, you know, are going to really change the landscape of hip-hop. And so, uh, you know, when it all comes down, Jesus walks, those are some those are some pretty heavy, heavy things in regards to the black community, kind of like where hip-hop is going and kind of gives it back a more kind of social conscious in the mainstream hip-hop um i think you kind of had that with like you know mc groups like wu-tang and the type a tribe called quest but you know mainstream rap it kind of was like you had jaw rule fat joe kind of putting out the um you know cash money kind of deal and there wasn't really much of a conscience to it and then you know eminem kind of like blows up and um white America kind of like gets all into it. And so we really don't have like a kind of socially conscious rapper for a few years. And so it was really refre refreshing to kind of see Kanye kind of 
ascend and, and put in these themes of like socioeconomic status, race, and kind of bring that to the forefront when it had been put in the burner for like several years. So do we are you done? I don't really have many thoughts. Yeah, on that was the Kanye West album. Wrap up about uh, that <laughs> Kanye West album. I'm not a big fan of rap. Uh, I don't have a lot to say. Yeah, I don't like Kanye, but if you say he's a good guy, Edison, I'll listen to you. I like that album. I've heard it before, and I'm also guilty pleasure power. But other than that, I don't listen to a lot of. I listen to a lot of older hip hop mainly because uh, I prefer it, and I feel like it was more political back then, and more something I could get in with and understand but newer hip-hop doesn't always do that for me so i think you know with any mainstream kind of uh music you kind of get that like you know necessarily talking about you know certain issues in the world but i think kanye kind of opens up the door to like kendrick uh kendrick lamar a chance the rapper um those kinds of guys and it really um, he's kind of like the beginning of that kind of consciousness, that new wave of like hip hop that kind of uh, has really exploded and kind of taken taken hold in uh, 2017. So um, yeah, uh, you kind of get the in a different perspective, and you you know, especially in this podcast with me. Dude, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about any hip hop, so I'm just going to go into this out there right now. The only hip hop artist I've gotten into anytime recently was um. Hobson, that was mainly his Ill Mind series, where he talks about his personal conflicts. One of the songs is his personal conflict religion. He talks about uh, personal conflict with the status quo and uh, pop culture with uh, the hip-hop pop culture that surrounds that. And he talks about his um, beefs that he has with that. Um, it's a really interesting series of songs, and I also like a lot of his other songs. I got into him through Ill Mind of Hobson 7, and that song launched me into pretty much going through his entire discography and listening to his music. I liked him. That's a recommendation. I like some of them. Is Little Dicky considered hip-hop? If Little Dicky's considered hip-hop, <laughs> I, call, I call myself a fan of one hip-hop artist, but otherwise yeah. I'm going to pick I'm gonna pick and choose some Eminem songs. And say about yeah, no, I'm on our show. I'm not picking and choosing. But Little Dicky, though. Big fan. <sighs> you want to go? Yeah, sure. I'll... Uh... So for me, it's kind of controversial because it's 12 out of the 13 songs are covers, but <laughs> I'm going to go with Michael Buble's It's Time. There are, he, <coughs> so Home is the only track that he actually wrote on the album, but there are songs he's covered by Stevie Wonder. There was a Sinatra song. There was Nina Simone song, uh, The Beatles. There's actually a Beatles song on the album. I know at least Edison's heard me play this song over and over and over in my car for the past year so i don't know it's like i have this affinity for like frank sinatra dean martin the rat pack in general and michael buble is really the only person alive today that i find that really like brings me back to the brings me back to those people he definitely has the voice for it oh yeah definitely i if i think frank sinatra was the only person who ever had like a perfect tone and Michael Bublé is it's still not quite there like you're not Sinatra level but he's he's pretty good though. He's the, he's come he's pretty close. So this album it's just it's not it doesn't tell a story like <clears throat> like American Idiot or anything it doesn't tell a story from song to the first song to the last song but basically every song on there just brings me back to not even back because I wasn't alive when they were alive but it brings me it puts me in the mood of this time that was before I was even born of the Rat Pack and all of these other people. Uh, I don't have like some deep personal reason like Edison as far as like the social social implications or anything like that. It's really just it represents my music taste. It represents people who aren't around anymore. It represents what I'm into. Honestly, it it's a perfect culmination. I think it is the fact that it it's he's covering a lot of other artists that I appreciate. And it just kind of brings it together for me. It's a modern retelling of a culture that you um, enjoyed. Yeah. Michael Buble is a great artist. I personally like it. He's one of the few people I can actually listen to Christmas songs. Mainly just because I grew up listening to Christmas songs like three months before Christmas would start. And I got really tired of all of them. <laughs> but I can still listen to Buble because his voice is so good. 
Money. Like how uh, Joshua picked the one not Michael Bublé Christmas album, and we decided to immediately jump into Michael Bublé's Christmas album. <laughs> I, I'm because okay. I'm sorry. He hasn't done anything else. I don't care if you just said he did something else. He's only done Christmas albums. He has like five or six albums, a lot of which are actually original albums instead of just the cover album that I mentioned. I, I can't hear you. Christmas songs? Is that what you said? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, what's my favorite song by Michael Bublé? Uh, I just haven't met you yet. Oh, yeah. yeah. I like that song. I forgot that's Bublé. That's actually an album. Uh, as kind of like we were talking earlier, you know, about uh, lack of uh, understanding. Uh, okay. Social political yeah. climate again? No, 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 no. Not, not even that. I just, um, I just felt it. As far as like my views on Kanye, you're like the same. Like you're not getting it. Um, not necessarily getting it. I just think it's not my cup of tea. Yeah. But I, you're I, I, all right. I They're both great, and you should love them both. No, 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 no. I could get that. Like I just thought it was like funny. Like, yeah, the same way, like, you know, maybe nobody here has an opinion on Kanye. I have no opinion <laughs> on uh, Michael Bublé, but, you know, his Twitter game and his Instagram game is, uh, is pretty strong. On the bright side, it's pretty clear he's one of the few nice individuals left in the world. Now we know until, of. until next For week now. when it drops. <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> so that's really all I had, so we can move on to Jeff now. I'm... Terrible picking favorites. I listen to way too many genres of music and to way too many different artists to pick favorites. I'm actually just terrible at favorites in general. This is entirely an excuse. But, um, yeah, I'm just going to spitball, spitball some albums out there. Uh, my first one that I really enjoy, because I really enjoy reading books, even though I don't get around to it a lot recently, is Every Trick in the Book by Ice Nine Kills. This is a heavier album for uh, those of you who fear the metal. But um, Every Trick in the Book is really interesting because... You guys were talking about um, uh, how Green Day told a story with their whole album. What I like about every trick in the book is uh, every one of the songs is pretty much, I'd say, a remake. A remake of a book, a very popular book. For instance, there is uh, The People in the Attic, which is uh, The Diary of Anne Frank, made into song. They have Star-Crossed Enemies, which is Romeo and Juliet, retold through song of... Uh, Bloodbath and Beyond, which is the story of Dracula, Communion of the Curse, which is the ex, um, the Exorcist, and it's just they have a very stagey feel. Um, the album very much feels like a play. The way they uh, introduce um, orchestraic and metal and guitar into it, and it just blends so well. It feels like a presentation. It feels like something you'd see in a theater because that's just the way they introduce it. And I've always liked theatrical music, music that feels like. Um, the music itself gives feelings and tells a story of its own along with the words that are in it. And I've always just been a big fan of that. I don't think anybody here has heard the album besides me. I forced my girlfriend to listen to it, but um, nobody else here is going to be able to comment on that, but it's a really good album. And I think Edison should listen to it and Josh could try. I don't think he'd get very far, but yeah. Um, oh, I don't get an honorable mention. Do you want to? I kind of forget you're here because you don't talk a lot. <laughs> Uh, you can try it if you want to. No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, no, I didn't think you <laughs> were going just Actually, it's not true. You'd like Star-Crossed Enemies. You'd like Star-Crossed Enemies because there's literally... Is it because it says stars in the name? And... No, it's because it's not heavy at all. Oh, okay. Um, I think Jeff knew that you didn't want any part of it. That's yeah, why yeah. he didn't mention you. I'm, I am aware of why he didn't. I told Josh you could try it, even did. though I knew he wouldn't. Um, another, I can't say this is a very favorite <laughs> album, but it's something I'm very into right now, and it could become one of my favorite albums. It just came out in August of this year. Uh, is uh, Dead Weight by Wage War, another heavy, heavy album. Basically, I just love the Johnny Cash song on it. It's called Johnny Cash, and it's a beautiful love song. There are several beautiful love songs on it for anybody who likes um, uh, metalcore. Uh, another one is from Under the Cork Tree from 2005 by Fall Out Boy. Literally a perfect album. Every song on it is amazing. If you don't listen, haven't heard it, listen to it. It's better than any new Fallout Boy ever. Just saying, there's not an opinion on that. It's the best Fallout Boy. Um, and my final one is the self-titled album by Nothing More. Um, this song, it, like the songs on it, are all amazing. Uh, there's a song called uh, "Christ on Co Christ on Copyright," which is basically um, a song about politician using religion to sell ideas to people who wouldn't normally um, take it, but because it's 
uh, given to them in the gift wrapper of Jesus, people accept it. They're a very um, Christian band, and they very much believe in their uh, uh, they believe in the Bible a lot, and it just comes up in all of their songs. And as much as I'm not very religious, I enjoy the way they embrace their religion and the um, openness they have to different ideas. And it's a very good song for that. Um, another song on that album is like great is a uh, Jenny, which is about um, about uh, just, uh, the lead singer's sister. But um, it also, several other band members have had the same situation in their life. Um, Jenny is a hypothetical sister uh, that has a drug abuse problems and um, coalescing with his mother being uh, sick and trying to stay alive, basically, to take care of her, even though Jenny isn't letting anybody take care of her. It's a very powerful story. Um, uh, God Went North is not from that album, but it's the story of the mom. Uh, just there's a lot of powerful music on that album, and it's, it's very touching. I've always enjoyed touching music, theatrical music, um, basically anything that can provoke a lot of emotion from me, which is the point of music, but to a degree, I like very strong emotional music. Just nothing more by nothing more is a great album, and I enjoy it greatly. But no big time. Um, kind of going back to what you were saying, so we're talking about like a lot of these bands that you're you like and you listen to and what's really cool is that it, the advent of the internet kind of like allows for like a lot of these bands to kind of like put their music out there in an era where maybe say 17 years ago they would need to have gone through the avenues of like traditional like yeah. record labels the uh, in particular uh you mentioned kind of on, under the cork tree by fallout boy it was kind of like that album that kind of put them out there as like hey we exist, we're out there, you know. We're amazing. We're amazing, yeah. So do you ever worry that because of the way that, like, everything can be so niche in music now because of the of the internet and it's kind of like putting things out through streaming that you won't, we won't necessarily get to experience like another Fall Out Boy in the sense that, you know, by going through, like, those, like, traditional out, like, avenues of, like, the record label, they were kind of able to kind of put it out on like a mainstream audience that may necessarily didn't know about them before. I think the way marketing works these days and the way uh, businesses have gotten into the mix and made it, I think that the only thing is that not necessarily everything that becomes mainstream, but a lot of the things that are tried to put out into the mainstream, whether or not they become successful or not, are kind of watered down in more general audience because that's what labels want. They want to be able to sell it to as many people as possible. I really like the niche thing of the internet and the ability for people to make the music they like and to release it because as much as it doesn't reach, reach a wider audience, I enjoy a lot of it. Even if, like, I listen to the music that Josh listens to. I listen to a lot of hip-hop, uh, a lot of older hip-hop, none of the newer stuff I haven't tried to get into yet. I listen to metalcore, <coughs> pop-punk, punk rock. Um, I've been listening to jazz recently. The whole entire um, uh, music album for the uh, Monsters, Inc. movie is fantastic, and it's amazing jazz. Um, yeah, I listen to just so many different genres, and I feel like a lot of these uh, musicians, these uh, bands, wouldn't be able to get their foot in the door if it wasn't for the advent of the internet, and I feel... Uh, especially things like Spotify, even though um, I, I've vaguely heard of um, Spotify's money practices not paying out very well, but Spotify allows people to listen to them. Um, just music outlets like that allow people to hear different types of music they wouldn't generally find. Like, I don't think I would have ever heard of, heard or found The Pokes if it wasn't without Spotify. The Pokes? Pokes? Um, I mean, you would have heard... Of them, at least from yeah, Dr. Howard Hallaby, yeah. the wonderful Middle Eastern professor who has an affinity for Irish culture. <laughs> Surprise. Irish. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was Jeff. I guess we can move on to RJ. Um, I feel like I'm following someone I can never hope to live up to because I like music. I don't love music. It's okay. <laughs> um, I got into music a couple years ago, so they don't have anything like formative like Edison all the way back to 2004 and like a bunch of fond memories from his childhood. 
Uh, so I'm just going to go with something that has a lot of emotional value to me, and that's uh, 52nd Street by Billy Joel. Billy Joel is one of my favorite artists, and all of his songs are just fantastic and speak to me on an emotional level and have some memories I don't care to discuss with everybody in this room. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that or uh, I don't want so much country, but American 4, The Man Comes Around by Johnny Cash. Uh, it's a quality depression album. If you're ever uh, in a bad mood and just need to cry for a little bit, Perfect album for you to do that. And talk talk about an album that just really gut punches you. Mer <laughs> as a is a Johnny Cash that uh fourth volume man. <laughs> man comes around. Personal Jesus. Her it's the one that always gets me. I know the song hurt, but every time somebody says that, I think of Nine Inch Nails, and I know that's not what they're talking about. I don't know. There is a song that, like, somebody... Johnny Cash is probably one of those other artists that just hits me so emotionally every time I listen to him. I've been binging that a little bit recently just because of uh, Wages War mentioning them. But, yeah, no, just kind of talking back about, like, uh, you know, you're you're kind of, like, talking about how you think of Hurt, you think of uh, Johnny Cash. I'm not Johnny Cash, but Nine Inch Nails. I guess my point was, man, if there was ever a guy that, like, straight up stole a song from, like, a different band in the sense that, like, this is now mine. As much as you made it and you wrote it and you put it to, to life, it's my song now, that, that, that is it. Johnny Cash, man, when that song plays, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he did it. It's just, it's a really, it's kind of like a, a, like a beat-up dog. I know. <laughs> it's so sad, but it's so beautiful at the same time. The and, and yet, yeah, I don't know. It's just, there's something to I that. mean, Edison's not advocating to go beat the no, shit out of your dog. I'm just trying to. Like, He's just saying just, there's like something a, strong about it, just seeing a dog that's been through actual hell and then still, like, a dog. Puppy. Yeah. And, man, that video. You kind of just. You feel bad for him because it, it almost looks like as though. He he has several regrets, you know, yeah. going through in life. But all of his songs make me feel regretful. Like I don't even have that many. I'm not a regretful person, but every time I listen to Johnny Cash, it makes me think of this thing, and then I feel regret about it. And then the songs are like, wait, why was I feeling bad about that? Yeah, no, Johnny Cash, Oof. especially that one. Oh, as a as a testament to the man. The man physically embodies depression. <laughs> like, if we could, like, amalgamate depression uh, into the person, that's I'd like to make a claim that, uh... If music could be an item, <coughs> that album is a Xanax pill. <laughs> I think it says a lot about RJ that that's his favorite album. Elliot Smith is probably the embodiment of depression. <laughs> but Johnny Cash is also the embodiment of depression. They can both be it. You know what? I'm not going to argue that he's not. <laughs> But at least Elliot Smith is definitely up there too, and just making you regret everything. Oh yeah, Morrissey. Ooh. That's some the Smiths. They talk about uh, sadness. Same. Same with Death Cab for Cutie. For Death Cab for Cutie is beautiful, though. I like. I know the songs are sad, but every time I listen to them, I'm just getting happy because the music is so well done. It's like this strange. There's this. Heartbeat in Quiet Rooms is beautiful. Oh, man. Death of an Interior Decorator is like... <laughs> I also love the titles. Pop-punk titles and titles of that, like, the punkiest genre just are great. Let me tell you something. If there was a song that could make you simultaneously both uh, hopeful and just broken inside, that song <laughs> is that. But, yeah. Um, I think it's kind of interesting, kind of like how music can kind of uh, put these different uh, feelings and emotions, uh, especially ones that were like you know our, our favorites, and kind of get you to where you you need to go. Um, in, in terms of like emotion, whenever you're in a certain predicament in life. So it's always nice to kind of have those favorites to like look back on fondly. Actually, one more throw, and I'm not going to talk about it much. I'm just going to mention it. Um, uh, okay, well, Jeff, well, well, you uh, make well, noises. I'll talk about something <laughs> for a second. Uh, not to make everybody think like Billy Joel or uh, Johnny Cash are my favorite artists. That, that's David Bowie. 
And uh, if we want to talk about David Bowie's like writing his own eulogy in the form of Black Star and how incredible that was, oh, we could do that for a minute because I think of Black Star and I almost cry every time I like listen to like Lazarus. I or, feel like uh, we could just talk about that all. That would be the podcast if we start talking about that. Lazarus. Oh man, actually, we're gonna do this now. We're kind of like, especially with, with our favorites. Um, if there's a if there's an album that kind of like brings me back to like in terms of like in terms of like embodiments of stuff, man. Uh, the White Stripes, um, White Blood Cells. Like if you could picture like being a seven year old again, <laughs> that's what White Blood Cells is. I mean, um, you know, I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Is just it is so pure of a song and. What's really great about like a lot of those is like it's about like school girl, you know, school crushes, kind of just trying to figure yourself out, and that's an album that if you, you get the chance, you know, give it a give it a shot for sure. That's what I was gonna say about Unimagined by Hansel Houses. I remembered them because I'm wearing the shirt right now. Uh, yeah, that's a another album with a bit of a social political view in it, but. The music itself is beautiful, and I don't particularly want to go into the social politicalness of it. So I'm just going to say all the songs in it are beautiful. You, if you haven't heard of Hands Like Houses, listen to Unimagined, and you will love Hands Like Houses. I don't care what genre you're into. You will most likely love it. All right, so I think everybody's probably got a pretty good idea of our music tastes, how that kind of influences our lives and things and views and things like that. So maybe we can move into movies, do the same thing with movies. So Edison, do you want to go first again? Yeah. If we're going to, if we're going to talk about like favorite movies, it's just kind of like, you know, <coughs> one for me that just kind of always sticks out in my head is Juno. That was like, talk about the right movie, the right person at the right time. Um, it really captures kind of like the angstiness of being a teenager and it's kind of like, you know, wow, you know, taking taking a person's, uh, taking a teenager's problems very seriously. I think uh, with a lot of these movies, we kind of see um, the kind of silliness of it. And kind of like how maybe not as huge of, of a problem, um, you know, maybe teenagers may necessarily not necessarily have it uh, when they're going through their daily lives, but... Juno is kind of one of those like movies that you kind of harken back to, like Pretty in Pink, uh, The Breakfast Club, um, as like really having a well-written character and to have an actress like Ellen Page to kind of you know take that angst, the anxiety, the anxiety, um, the trying to figure yourself out. Um, aspects of you know growing up and and just put that on the screen so well so well performed and Jason Rittman uh, his dad was the director of Ghostbusters 2 um, Ivan Rittman um, he kind of has a really good understanding of like dialogue and people and so nobody well maybe there are characters in that movie that feel eccentric you know get that little cameo from Rain Wilson as the, you know, the clerk at the, you know, little convenience store. It feels like a real convenience store clerk. Like it's somebody that, you know, in your own neighborhood that just, you know, give you crap. And, you know, the friends feel authentic. The relationships between uh, Juno and her parents are, are, are well written. So that was always a favorite of mine kind of going back uh, in terms of films. I don't think anyone here is going to argue with you that Juno isn't a fantastic movie. I'm going to make a sinful admission here. I've never seen Juno, but I just added it to a list, and I'm probably going to watch it instead oh. of going to sleep now. Well, I mean, I have it on DVD, so if you want to watch it tonight. Oh, I have many ways to watch Juno. It's, it's been years since I've seen Juno, so if you um, want to go home after this, we can pop it in, buddy. I think I'm going to make watch it. Um, and then... Well, you know, if we're talking about favorites again, also in terms of movies. Another one, just kind of like, I'm sure we'll get to it later in a podcast, but The Dark Knight, talk about <laughs> a movie that uh, lived up to the hype. Uh, Heath Ledger is the OG. 
probably is always TRG. He is, right? And probably like up there with Hamill Lecter and Darth Vader in terms of like yeah. cinematic villains. It's just well, I mean, the, there's some plot holes in that film. It's not a perfect film by any stretch. Especially, you know, as we're going But like, if we're going by acting filling the roles, he's yeah. like a fantastic job of representing the Joker. Well, I mean, I've so I've forever I've forever tattooed Heath Ledger on my rib cage. Yeah. So I feel like that that movie it uh it really it represents my childhood. It represents everything that I was interested in as a child. It was like I've moved on to more slightly more mature pop culture things now, but all all through my childhood that's really huh. it was the Joker. That was the one character that I cared for. And it wasn't just like any Joker. It was either Mark Hamill or it was Heath Ledger. And I've probably seen that movie forty times or upwards and I know you've seen it just as many. Yeah. Oh man. That uh that opening scene, that homage to Heat, so good. Just kind of uh probably the best I think I can make the argument that's probably the best opening scene in a film I've seen. Uh just the, the clowns kind of like off of themselves one by one. And then it's kind of like, it's kind of, it's kind of casual how they just introduce like some of like you introduce the Joker and not necessarily having to, to do all this exposition about who he is kind of like as they're going along, you know, killing themselves. And you're kind of like, Oh, who's, who's the Joker. And it's like, Oh, he's a guy war paint. And kind of get like that little mini introduction without necessarily, having to do the obligatory, like, origin for him, uh, like every other superhero movie tends to do these days, where it's like, got to have the obligatory, like, here's who I am. got to have an here's entire my... movie to describe your origin story, basically. Exactly. So it's kind of it's kind of like, we have this little, <coughs> like, little quick thing to introduce them, and they kind of just put them out there and... I mean, you'll, you'll go to Comic-Con or something, and you'll see people cosplaying just as bank robber Joker. Like, it's a five- to ten-minute scene, but they'll be they'll take that five- to ten-minute scene, and they'll put all this effort into it because it was so influential, and it was so so different than anything else that's been done. Yeah, although that Bale, that Bale Batman voice, uh, not aged in, yeah. in ten years. I don't know if age is the word we should use. It was pretty dumb the moment it came out of his mouth. So, uh, But it was beautiful. And how much it got me. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, uh, Jeff? What, what's a what's a favorite movie of yours that you kind of? I'm gonna make an admission. I'm gonna make an admission right now. I am a slut for satire movies. Um, Clue, a satire of the murder mystery. Um, <coughs> Princess Bride, uh, Blazing Saddles, pretty much anything Mel Brooks put his hands on. I just love all of them without a doubt. I'd probably say favorite movie of all time is either Young Frankenstein or, you know, we'll just go with Young Frankenstein unless something else comes I'm deeply offended that you just listed a bunch of satire films and didn't say Spaceballs. What is wrong Sorry, I you? said anything Mel Brooks put his hands on. Maybe, yeah, it deserves its own Okay, Spaceballs. Spaceballs is there too. Words like gets about you. I hope somebody hits you with their ring. See, I like Young Frankenstein because Gene Wilder's in Gene Wilder's in it, and he's an amazing Frankenstein. <laughs> um, not to be anal tainted like uh, RJ over here, but uh, for the folks watching at home before they rip us a new one, yes, we do know that Rob Reiner uh, wrote The Princess Bride and not Mel. Oh, yeah, no, I wasn't saying that. I, that was its other side note. I was just saying that so I didn't have to list off every movie Mel Brooks has written. Well, yeah, no, I'm going to take the stand, hard stance right now. Mel Brooks wrote The Princess Bride. <laughs> We're saying it, it happened. He stole it from him. It's not his style. It's not quite gross enough to be Mel Brooks, but Mel Brooks is great. Spaceballs. Oh, no, wait. Oh, I freaking forgot the trilogy. Uh, Hot Fuzz. Uh, the world's the world's Shaun end. of the Dead and Shaun, the World's End. Yeah, the World's End and Shaun of the Dead. That amazing trilogy by the actors I can't think of. Was Simon Pegg. Simon Pegg. Thank I you. The chubby ones. <laughs> Simon Pegg's the only important one. Simon Pegg didn't actually. I'm sure they were all amazing. But Simon Pegg. Whoa. There's a reason he's beloved everywhere. Yeah, Edgar Edgar Ray is kind of yeah, like, that's what um, I was looking for. Has really taken off in terms of like 
um, past the satire stuff, it's kind of like with Baby Driver, it's like, it's like an homage to kind of like the racing film, kind of like of the 70s, and now he's kind of like, kind of, his stock has kind of risen in, in Hollywood, so it'll be <laughs> interesting to see like whether he continues kind of like the satire route, or if he kind of decides to make his, uh, his serious period, you know, serious film. I think he's leaning towards more, I remember reading something else. He's leaning towards more serious films for not, like not permanently, but like his <coughs> films are something he wanted to take a stab at that he had been working on for a while. RJ. RJ. Um, well, movies are kind of my home here. I still don't <laughs> want to bore everybody with it, but, uh, if we're going to go with, like, most meaningful, most emotional movie for me, that's going to be something a lot of people will disagree with. But Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1, well, a lot of people don't necessarily think it's, like, like, people think it's special, but it's not, like, fucking the best movie. For me, it's, like, it's a movie that kind of got me out of my shell. I was shy back in 2014, and I still remember when that movie came out. It kind of, like, as I think the best way to put it is the way James Gunn did afterwards is that he made this movie as a movie for outcasts, people who were ashamed of who they were, and, like, to give them, a, like, a ray of hope that they're okay and they can find people like like them and they can interact and be humans. And I think that, like, what his, like, what he was trying to channel in that and give, like, the lo- lo- lesser guy? Little guy. Little guy. Underdog. Little guy. Little guy hope and, like, that he will be a person was kind of beautiful, and I just enjoy James Gunn as a human being, and that movie will always hold a special place in my heart. As for just best-made movie, I guess Pulp Fiction, uh, or anything Tarantino's ever put his fucking hands on, including Four Rooms. That scene from Four Rooms that was directed by Tarantino was amazing. Man, Tarantino is... Uh, Pulp Fiction is kind of like that film that, yeah... You know that you can always kind of go back to and just quote. It's so quotable. Huh? Uh, I remember the first time I watched that was on a plane. The first time I got on a plane, which was actually more recently than I'd like to admit, even though I attempted to watch it before. I watched it on a plane ride over to uh, London, and uh, that was a great plane ride because of that movie. It'll be interesting to see how kind of like younger generations kind of look back on like. Films like pulp <coughs> fiction, whether they can relate to it as well as um, you know we have, and you know, you know, obviously like Generation X, kind of like that's their that's their film, that's their movie, kind of like uh, fills all the hallmarks of like kind of like uh, the humor, the the, the ultra violence, and it's it's quotability for sure. It's quintessential Tarantino. Like, if there's ever a movie you need to use to describe Tarantino as a person, it's Pulp Fiction. Did Josh go? No, I haven't, actually. Um, so I have a couple. The first one I'm going to guess nobody else in this room has seen, and the second one I'm not proud of, but we're going to do it, do it anyways. Um, so I, I was at Walmart one time, and I was looking in the $3 movie bin, and a uh, movie had Frank Sinatra on the cover, so of course you heard my music interest. I was interested and amazingly, he doesn't even sing in this movie. But it's uh, it's called The Man with the Golden Arm. It was made in 1955. It's a black and white movie. And uh, spoiler alert, it's a little... You ha- you've had time. So um, it's basically the story of... Frank is like this recovering drug addict coming home from rehab. And he's coming back into town. And he's trying to become a musician. He learned how to play the drums while he was in rehab. And he's kind of taking this road and... The base, his wife is in a wheelchair when he comes back home. His wife is in a wheelchair, and he thinks that he needs to take care of her and all this other stuff. So he goes through this journey, and eventually he ends up dealing cards for this kind of this bookie-type character played by Dean Martin. And eventually he ends up addicted to crack again. And you got to think this was in 1955, and they this was... It was kind of controversial at the time. They didn't even want to release it in theaters, but eventually they did get it through. And so it was basically the first time people in America saw something like this on a big screen. Like, well, we see TV shows now constantly where something like that's portrayed, but for it was kind of like a shock factor back in the day. And in the end of the movie, Frank finds out that his wife was lying and she doesn't need the wheelchair and she was just doing this so he would stay with her. So it's basically just like shock after shock, and you see Frank portrays this – he portrays a drug dealer – like I think it would be comparable to 
any amazing performance of someone who's done the same thing since then. I mean, this was the movie that he won an Oscar for a different movie, but this was the movie that he thought, and a lot of other people thought that he deserved an Oscar for. Does any, has anyone else seen this movie? By I was in the room when my dad watched it. I didn't pay much attention. Okay. I was five years old in black and white movies. Yeah. Since boy. Um, yeah, no, I think the farthest back I could go in terms of films is uh, Psycho. I, know, I think it's like 16, I've seen Nosferatu, so I can go all the way back to the 30s or 40s whenever that was made. All right, well, my second choice, which I said I wasn't proud of, is Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny. I don't don't be, feel ashamed, man. That movie is a I, fucking trip. I realized <laughs> I realized that the movie is not at all like a quality film. It, oh, no, it's it, shouldn't, it shouldn't win awards or anything, it's but true. it's just like from start to finish, I enjoy that movie. I don't know what it is. It's not like a deep emotional connection. I do love like parody music from time to time, and I love Jack Black's voice specifically. And I think he and Kyle Gass just work so well together, and they they really portrayed that on screen in a in a way it's like how can you take a band and make a movie about it and although it didn't get good critical reception because it's like i said it's because not critics are dumb yeah yeah critics are dumb yeah, critics are dumb. like i'm still waiting for the sequel tenacious d and the bong of destiny but is that what they, is that like yeah what the devil's horn falls off at the end and no. they turn it into a bong <laughs> actually speaking of that that reminded me were you done yeah okay uh, that reminded me of Kung Pao, if anybody's seen that movie. Oh, my goodness. Talk about... Uh, a trip. <laughs> parody film. Talk about parody film. That is another amazing movie. I will fight anybody who says that movie's not fantastic. It is... It's pretty good satire in terms of, like, you know, making fun of, like, Into the Dragon and a lot of those uh, Kung Fu films from, like, the, the mid-60s and early 70s. I'm going to summarize this movie without actually giving away any of the plot. Imagine if a New Days actor who looks pretty and uh, wanted to go make a movie uh, got on his own, found a old, um, oh, I want to say open source, that's not the right word, what's a public access movie uh, from like 60s or 70s, a Japanese kung, uh, kung fu movie, uh, took that, redubbed over it badly on purpose, and then edited him in him and a few other characters into the movie and made a whole new story around it. And just just imagine that, because that's what the movie is, and it's amazing. Um I guess for uh, the tastemakers out there, I'll I'll throw out one that's uh, a little more like an indie darling, I suppose. But um Pan's Labyrinth is I I, I can go down saying that it's one of the ten movies that I think a person needs to see in their life. It is. It's a wonderfully constructed uh, but uh, incredibly morbid kind of uh, take on the fairy tale. And it's set in the Spanish Civil War. You know, Francisco Franco has uh, taken over Spain and it's this uh, it's premise is that it's this little girl who uh, her mother is married to one of the lieutenants of the uh, Black Flags during the height of the Spanish Civil War. And so in the middle of like kind of like this, you know, modern retelling of like the events that happened there, um, this little girl is kind of like off on her own and meets up with this fawn. And it, you know, declares that, you know, she's really not, these people's parents and that her real parents are these, this magical king and queen and that they have these tasks to do in order. She has these tasks to do in order to um, be reunited with them. And what you kind of get is this really beautifully constructed film uh, about loss, about death, about life, um, you know, childhood and, and things like that. And it's a, I won't spoil the ending. I think it's a, it's quite, quite beautiful in certain aspects. And um, it's such a beautifully constructed film. And Guillermo del Toro, um, we'll see what happens with The Shape of Water, which comes out later this year. But I, I truly believe it's kind of like his, that's, that's the film that if you, you want to get an understanding of who he is as a filmmaker, 
uh, Pan's Labyrinth is is that movie. I remember seeing that, and that movie had the same amount of. I don't want to quite say wonderment, but wonderment is the word I'm going to use. It get, had the same amount of wonderment and the same kind of feeling that I got when I was watching the original. Uh, no, when I read Alice in Wonderland, it kind of had the same feeling and some of the same kind of ideas and lessons in the same way of telling a story. And I enjoyed it just as much as I enjoyed uh, reading Alice in Wonderland. Absolutely. I think the uh, kind of the surrealism and the kind of almost like, I wouldn't necessarily say psychedelic, but just kind of like the atmosphere that's kind of like, it's kind of like a dreadful kind of, it's, you're not necessarily sure this girl is completely safe throughout the whole journey. And you, and you see that as she kind of progresses throughout this quest and throughout these different tasks that she's doing. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, not to undercut the beauty of uh, Pan's Labyrinth because it is a fantastic film, but uh, has anyone here seen Stoker? <laughs> S-C-O-K-E-R. It is uh, it's a little bit more obscure than Pan's Labyrinth, as you can tell. Um, it is essentially a coming-of-age story, but for a serial killer. Like uh, a teenager finding out that they are a serial killer and going through that. Huh. All right, guys. Well, I think we've pretty much discussed everything we wanted to today. We've let you in, given you some insight on our taste for music, our taste for movies. So unless anybody else has something to say, I guess we're going to wrap it up. Um, One last thing. If you get the chance, watch the movie. uh, I think it's called Breaking Glass. It's uh, essentially... It's Peyton Christensen's movie. Um, I think you, if the guy got a bad break in Hollywood, um, especially after uh, Star Wars. But um, essentially, it's about a guy who uh, this is kind of like the height of the internet, kind of like as it's like kind of becoming mainstream. But he writes for I believe it was Vanity Fair, and he's talking. He essentially bullshitted a bunch of like articles that he wrote about like hacker conventions and stuff like that. And it's almost kind of like this thriller in the sense that you're kind of rooting for him to, like, lie his ass out out of the situation. And so um, it's kind of like uh, it didn't get as much love back in the day. I think um, it's got rewatchability um, that's pretty high. And I think uh, if a lot more people watched it, I think Hayden Christensen would uh, get a lot more love these days. So I'm going to... Let you end it on that. All right, guys. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time.